so I commend the enjoyment of life, because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life, of the life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Thanks, Radhika. Thanks, Radhika. Eldon Ponds did something he had never done before. He was sitting at another Wednesday, um, cube steak and broccoli dinner, listening to his kids prattle on about something that they were very excited about doing in the next month that was going to cost him a pile of coin. He watched his wife listening intently to their nonsense and noticed that her crow's feet had been deepening. She looked at him and he felt a little bit angry that there was neither desire nor comfort in the way she looked at him. And so he just stood up, picked up his plate, walked over to the basement door, opened it up, and closed it behind him. When he got to the bottom of the stairs, he flipped on the light over his hobby bench and he put his plate down on the bench and he slumped all his weight in that old office chair that he loved so much. And the counter was strewn with fly tying materials and coin collecting stuff. And he just finally took a moment to pick up the 1763 Spanish coin that had just come from a European dealer. And he looked at it under the light in the magnifying glass. And he could see every movement of the embossing. He could see every scratch. It had accumulated over hundreds of years. He could see every bit of tarnish that was clinging to the metallic surface. And then he set it down, and then he mouthed another forkful of rubbery goodness. And then he couldn't help but notice the two circles on the desk. There's the coin that he loved so much, and the plate of dinner that he couldn't seem to love at all. And it struck him that what was really so different between the imperfections on the face of the coin and the growing imperfections of age on his wife's face. And what was really the difference between the contours of the relatively arbitrary choice of a long-dead Spanish minter and the prattling of his own children about what they wanted to do? And it didn't really make him feel better about his life. It really made him feel a whole lot more depressed about his hobby. And he leaned back, and he sort of reflexively took in this deep breath and let it out in a sigh. And he kind of felt that little tinge of peaceful happiness that just comes with a good, long exhale. And in the midst of all of that, he had a saving thought. I just took pleasure in breathing.
one of the reasons we've spent four weeks in this Art of Normal series is because if we can't learn to take pleasure in our ordinary lives, our work, our families, our covenantal friendships, any of our other roles, our hobbies, leisure, amusement, and rest cannot save our sense of significance or happiness. When we don't have the capacity through the transformation of Jesus to actually enjoy the most basic things of ordinary life as we were created to, the natural thing most human beings turn to, besides illicit relationships, is avocations, hobbies, leisures, amusements. And, but all of those things are just another part of ordinary life. They're not really fundamentally different than it. And if you can't take pleasure in your work, and if you don't take pleasure in your wife, or your kids, or your covenantal friendships, or any of those other things that are part of your vocations, roles, responsibilities that are repetitive, it's really just a matter of time before you see that your amusements and your hobbies and your leisure and your rest are not fundamentally different than those things and are either just as depressing or just as engaging. One of the things that's really easy to forget, the more devout a believer in Jesus you are, is that Jesus takes pleasure in all of creation. There's this passage in Luke where Jesus says to people who are full of worry, he says, listen, I know you're worried about stuff, but listen, God created the birds that fly around, and they don't—they're not that bright, okay? Like, they don't— cultivate stuff, and they don't store anything away, and all they do is sing at inopportune times when humans try to sleep, and yet God it doesn't, isn't apparently annoyed with them. He loves them, and he feeds them, and that's why they're always about, and um, you might feel that doesn't mean that God takes pleasure in them, but then in the very next verses, he says, he adds to the bird thing. He says, listen, look out into the fields, right? April showers bring May flowers, right? Look out into the fields, either in Israel or Wisconsin, and he says, they're full of wildflowers. And he says, um, these flowers are one-day gigs. They open one day, and then they're gone. And the vast majority that will bloom this year on planet Earth, no human mind will appreciate them as many will be trampled upon as actually appreciated, and yet God will appreciate every one. Every one. And he, Jesus probably said flowers, because if he had gotten even deeper and said, like, grass and dirt and worms, we probably wouldn't have been able to even follow it. But one of the things that's really easy is that when you hear the message about Jesus and you hear about God being big and glorious and Lord over all things and there being sin and this cosmic rebellion of humanity and God's moral seriousness still being stretched over with his compassionate love and Jesus coming in the incarnation and in his life, death, and resurrection, he has provided an opportunity of salvation for all people and we can be saved and avert from eternal an eternal destiny of damnation towards a full regenerative salvation and then that can be echoed in forever in a real heavens and 
and a real new heavens and a new earth, and that all hangs in the balance of us believing, choosing, repenting, following, deciding, that in all of that, it is very easy to believe that with all that seriousness, that that takes something away from God's absolute general capacity to simply enjoy every single one-day flower. That doesn't mean you aren't more important to him than a flower. Jesus explicitly said you are. But it doesn't mean, he didn't say God doesn't like flowers, but he likes you. He says God is the kind of being that dresses the one-day flower greater than the greatest king species human has ever known. He is that waving in the generosity of his pleasure. And if he cares about flowers and you bear his image, think of how he cares about you. In that sense, it is the doctrine of God's pleasure in creation that Jesus is using to build a confidence in God's care for us in our worst worries. But the very thing that can unlock your capacity to get over worry can also enliven your sense of joy. Right? So in Ecclesiastes 8, he says this, So I commended the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life. I'm going to show you another passage that teaches the same thing, but I want you to look carefully at this because Solomon is saying something active precedes something passive. And this is one of the things that humans, especially secular American humans, have lost about the fundamental nature of human nature. And that is this, that it is what we actively do preceding our emergent happiness that dictates what it's going to be. That is, our active choice about taking pleasure in things precedes the natural feeling of pleasure we just get about things. So he says, so I commend to you enjoyment of life. Do you see that that's an active thing? He's saying life is there and you need to wake up in the morning and you need to embrace it. And I know it's ordinary and I know it's repetitive and I know that you have difficulty taking enjoyment in it. But God can take joy in a single one-day flower and you can take joy in creation just the same. And if you will do that, If you will commend to yourself, if you will actively learn to take enjoyment, here's what happens. Joy will accompany you in all the work of all the days of your life. Let's use a little bit more risque example. I did take out the uh, naughty part. Um, So... It isn't quite PG-13. So this is in Proverbs, and Solomon is teaching one of his sons about what wisdom looks like. And he says, May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may you, insert pair of sensual body parts, satisfy you always. May you be ever captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? So do you see the point here? The point here isn't just about not committing adultery. 
The point here is all about the internal realities of what we set our pleasures and affections on and what that produces. And so he says, when you marry a woman, (laughs) you need to take pleasure in her. You need to, rejoicing is like worship. It's something you do actively. You can rejoice. That is an action. That's not a feeling, right? He says, so may you actively, as a man, know what nobility looks like in love and take pleasure in and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And now, listen, when we talk about women, I get that we do not use ungulate metaphors, okay? And that these are a little bit lost on us. But in a desert culture, like, deer are basically the prettiest, most graceful kind of animal around. Your only other option is, like, an ibex, and they have really odd-looking horns, okay? It's just—that's just Israel, okay? And so, a loving doe, a graceful deer, you know, whatever. You can put in something else. Um, May her generally thought of his sexual body parts— Ever, may you ever always satisfy you, may you be ever captivated by her love. Solomon darn well knows that women age and it affects those body parts. And it does not matter as to how over time a man can be sensually pleased by his experience of his wife's love if and only if he has engaged in active pleasure-taking in the moral and spiritual nobility of her wifehood. That then transfigures the sensuality of, of more bodily pleasure so the two come together and rise. So even as we physically decline, pleasure can increase as it becomes multi-tiered in its moral, spiritual, and aesthetic beauty, which is combined with physical form. And so the man who rejoices in the wife of his youth is always satisfied with her throughout his life. And he finds himself passively, that is, without effort, emergently captivated by her love, even her sensual love, even as she ages. And if you don't do that, what passively happens is the opposite. You will naturally rejoice in the other woman that does the things or is the things your wife isn't. That is funnier, likes to listen to you prattle on about things, is just younger, whatever. And as you internally rejoice in that, you will ultimately be captivated by her. You see, the whole, the whole idea here, whether in Ecclesiastes or in Proverbs or in any places that talk about the natural spirituality of human happiness and joy, talks about how you and I choose what to delight in. And choosing to delight in something comes based on our conviction about its spiritual and moral and creational meaning. What it is, its being— And when we rejoice in its being, then we take pleasure in its form and in its idiosyncrasies and in its strangeness. So that your wife's crow's feet become the cutest thing you've ever seen, rather than just another sign that you're getting old too. Now, the reason why that's important is is that if, if we don't get that figured out, our avocations and our leisure and our rest cannot help us. 
You'll end up getting mad about your leisure and your hobbies and your things like that, that you don't get to do them more, and when you are doing them, you don't even really like them that much. It's like the guy that gets angry when he goes fishing and doesn't catch fish. Because it's not just fishing anymore. It's not just for fun. It's not just to—there's there's any reason is good enough to be outside. Now you're so angry about work that this is supposed to make you feel better. And leisure and hobbies and rest and avocation can't bear that load. They can't bear the load of regeneration from your sinful nature. They can only bear the load of receiving pleasure that God freely gives. And so a a big part of our life are these things, and yet they should be received and enjoyed and used and seen with just as much theological clarity as our work, our relationships, marriage, family, parenting, covenantal friendships, or anything else. And it includes kind of a large portion of our life, especially in industrialized nations where we have to spend less time at the work grindstone. But even when I was just in India, I was working with a guy who was shucking coconuts, which means you stand all day with a spear pointed at your eye, and you pick up the coconut, and you push it down, and it tears the husk off, and you do it like three times, and then you throw the coconut here. And he does about 5,000 of them, from 6 o'clock to about 11 o'clock, and then he's done. That is, he doesn't work as long as you. He has more leisure than you do. And he's just a coconut shucker in Andhra Pradesh, who does it a lot better than me, by the way. Three seconds, the guy can do it in. Leisure, or these kinds of pursuits that aren't fundamentally vocational, is actually up since 2008, which I think is just an economic anomaly, right? There's more boomers than there are millennials, and so there's more people who are retiring. They have seven and a half hours of leisure per person, and so it's just skewing. I don't think it's because we're getting paid more at work or something and getting more time off. Um, The average person in their use of leisure every day uses more than half of it for television, two hours and 49 minutes. The average retired person has seven and a half hours of leisure every single day. And in Wisconsin, we have about 14 months of winter, which affects our choices in what to do for leisure. So it's important to think about. Um, So if you decide to to, um, practice leisure, that is to sleep for the rest of the sermon, just hang with me for one more sentence. This is a sentence that I want you to leave with, and that is this. It's going to leave with the Fenrix. That That leisure, rest, enjoyment, and avocation are gifts of God for the purposes of God. And if you can only remember two of those phrases related to God, remember the gift of God one. Avocation, leisure, rest, and enjoyment are gifts of God. I'm going to make... Like basically three points about this and give a little pastoral advice. The first is, avocations are gifts of God for our well-being. Um, so my wife and I, I don't know if you have this, you can, you can laugh if you're married and this happens to you, but um, so my wife and I have four children. There's a, we're, you know, we, we're at a high responsibility stage of life, okay? And um, so when I'm home, sometimes um, there will not be something like scripted to be done, like we won't be making dinner or like putting kids to bed or doing something like very specific. And so every once in a while, one of us will kind of slink off to like do something. And invariably what happens is the other spouse immediately realizes the other has gone and go, Hey! Hey, Lex! What? What are you doing? Right? Oh, I'm just finishing something up. Right? It's kind of like, uh, you aren't having fun when I'm taking care of these children. 
It's probably more often me than her. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> who's keeping score? The point is, that is not what it's like when we receive leisure. It is not that we are the slaves of Christ, which we are. His total authority over everything in our life. But it's not like he, he's like, okay, listen, you need to work 23 hours a day. You can sleep for half an hour, and then you have a half an hour to make lists and make coffee. And that is what it means. If you really want to serve me, that's what it means. So let's go. He's just not like that. Right? He says in Matthew, all of you who are weary and heavy laden with the world, come to me and I will give you rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, leisure, pleasure, enjoyment, rest, hobby, celebration, these are not things we skulk away and try to do before God goes, hey, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? Come on back. You got, we got stuff to do. No, these are gifts of God where he says, go and enjoy yourself for a couple of hours. Right? Um, what are, what's my, do I have a biblical argument or am I just saying this, right? Um, in 1 Timothy, this is a really neat verse, and I, I've heard sermons on all of it but the underlined part. All right, Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and to be willing to share. Now, I've heard sermons about not putting my hope in wealth because wealth is uncertain and that God gives us everything anyway. And he's the one who richly gives. And I've heard sermons about being wealthy since statistically, basically every American is, and how that shouldn't make us selfish, but should make us rich in good deeds, generous, and willing to share. There is a prepositional phrase that is obviously intentionally written by the apostle that I have never heard a pastor utter in 20 years of following Jesus. For our enjoyment. One more time. One more time. <laughs> For our enjoyment. That is, that God provides not only our daily bread, and not only our simple laborious vocation, and not only our marital responsibilities, and our children, and the things that are difficult and, and, res and responsibility-oriented. He provides everything— including leisure, hobby, enjoyment, celebration, all of it for our enjoyment. If you cannot stop, rest, celebrate, relax, enjoy, there is a prepositional phrase in the Bible that is just for you. And you may have a good work ethic, but you may not have a correspondingly good leisure ethic, which is also biblical. Also in Mark 2.27, there's this place where the disciples are going along and they're picking the tops of some grain to eat it. It's just perfectly legal because the outside of the grain thing was considered for anyone who 
wanted to eat it or take it or whatever. And so they're just like picking up a, a, a head of grain and they're like rolling it out and they're eating the kernels because they're hungry. And there are some religious people with them and they're like, dude, you can't do that. You can't do that threshing. That's work. It's the Sabbath. And everybody's kind of looking at them like, are you kidding me? Right? And they're like, nope. You gotta obey God. Sabbath belongs to God. God made the Sabbath. It's God's commandment. You need to obey God's commandment. And Jesus, you know, Jesus could have said something like, um, yeah, he didn't mean this. Like, he didn't mean eating a little piece of grain. But that isn't what he said. He said, listen, you, he, he goes much deeper than that. He says, look, you have actually flipped around the entire concept. Yes, the Sabbath is a commandment. Yes, God absolutely commanded it. Yes, he told people that if they didn't do it, they were breaking the, his entire covenant. Yes, it is, it's, it's as important as any other commandment in the entire Bible. And here's why. Because God wanted to lavish rest upon humanity. That's why. Because God, in his generosity, for our enjoyment, rest, recuperation, hobby, leisure, and celebration, he wanted to make dang sure that there was at least one day a week that no matter how low you were on the pay scale, even the donkeys and the oxen got to play and got to rest and got to enjoy and got to celebrate. You're missing the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is from God for people. In the generous sense, not in the duty sense. But being happy, taking rest, finding leisure is a duty. The second thing is avocation. Um, the avocations only honor God when they have a certain gospel character. So it's, it's not as though anything fun is like super cool because everything's a gift from God and God gives us our leisure and all that stuff. Um, how we pursue avocations matter. So for example, you can pursue avocations in a, in, in a degrading and excessive way. So for example, we can call things hobbies, leisures, relaxations that are wallowing in luxury, escapist, um, that are silencing of our conscience. So, for example, TV is a great example of this. There's like five different re reasons to watch TV. There's probably three or four that are really bad reasons, right? I don't want to concentrate on something I need to concentrate on. I don't want to have to have that conversation with somebody. I, I'm sick and tired of a hundred things. Um, I don't want to do the hard work of my making my own story great, so let me just watch somebody else's. Like, there's lots of just terrible reasons to watch television. And there's a couple good ones. Like, television contains art, artistic stories that are produced for the, for the general welfare and enjoyment artistically. And some of those shows actually would qualify as art by the most liberal possible standards. And you are enjoying art created by others out of their productivity for your enjoyment. You just watch it on a screen. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Right? So it really matters how we do many of our leisure avocations and rests. Right? And some are kind of sort of inherently wallowing in everything that is wrong with our sinful nature. Pursuing of triviality, isolation, personal vanity. So for example, Proverbs 21, 17 says, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. So you can pursue work wrongly. And similarly, you can pursue avocation wrongly. James 5, 5 says this, You lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. 
you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. So you, you engaged in leisure in such a way as to make yourself a fat pig for God to kill in his wrath. That's basically what that verse says. Okay? Which we should be able to deduce from that that there is a wrong way to luxuriously or vainly or wantonly or sinfully pursue leisures. Everything in human life that is part of creation, which would include human leisure and rest, is created by God for a profoundly good purpose and is corrupted by sin and drawn towards our self-destruction and selfishness. And so therefore, everything in our life, including everything ordinary in our life, is a fulcrum of a place where the sinful nature would war with the divine nature, with what God has created it for and what our sinful condition wants to make it. To twist it into something different. And so there's all, so every leisure that we have, every rest that we have, is a place where we're either redeeming it in the gospel, seeing it for its creative purpose, and embracing it as a gift of God, or it being just another pasture where the wild hogs of our sinful selfishness roam free and wallow. Right? This, the second thing is, even if it's a morally neutral kind of, um, kind of leisure or rest, it still can be out of proportion or imprudent, right? So we can have leisures or hobbies or things like that, and we still can spend too much money on them, too much time on them. They can engage us into too much isolation from other people that we should be in relationship with. Um, they can um, they can exclude us from things like stuff we're supposed to be doing with our kids or something like that. So for example, I've had to, this is a huge, has been a huge problem for me um, and a complaint of my wife for years. And I've had to like totally get rid of some of my hobbies that took me away for hobbies that kept me home and that I couldn't over fixate on. So for example, um, one of the reasons why I have been growing composting worms is because um, I can do it at home and I can't speed it up. <laughs> the little buggers only mate so fast and grow so fast, and there's nothing I can do to change that biology. And so there is a limited number of things that I can do a limited number of times, and then that's it. There isn't anything more I can do. And so I can't, I sort of can't obsess over it unless I like just stare at them. And the minute you open the top and the light comes in, they all go under. They don't love me. So, for example, in, in Florida, I was an 85% fisherman and a 20% hunter because they're actually large fish in Florida and tiny little deer. When I came to Wisconsin, I flipped that around because we have large ungulates and small fishes. Um, but I had to switch it back because my kids are terrible hunters and they like going out in the boat with dad. And I, I can embrace all of God's good creation, and so I can embrace fishing as much as I can hunting, and if my kids can fish with me, and that's what they want to do, and that's how I can spend time with my girls, then I just have to do it, even if they do bring their iPhone and play dance music while we're trying to catch sunfish. <laughs> um, that, di that didn't happen, of course. Um, <laughs> The, the, the characteristics of leisure, rest, and those things in a gospel place are four. And I, I took these from, let me just say for those of you who are in health sciences and recreational sciences, um, Paul Heintzman, who's professor of health sciences, author of Leisure and Spirituality at the University of Ottawa. Very helpful, very godly um, Good advice. Anyway, he says, four, he's, four, here's four things. So you can look at your leisures and whatever and say, okay, are these four things true? One is, 
godly leisure is characterized by a spiritual attitude of rest, peace, joy, freedom, and celebration, both in God and in God's creation. Rest, a spiritual attitude of rest, peace, joy, freedom, and celebration. So if when you engage in the hobby, leisure, rest, whatever, there is a, there's no separation between doing that and rejoicing in God and in, in what God has really created. So what you're doing is kind of in consonance with who God is and God's creation, and you have a spiritual attitude of rest and joy and peace when you're doing it. The second is, is that it's part of a real rhythm of work, responsibilities, those repetitions, and the leisure and the hobby and the rest. And that it kind of, that rhythm works. It's not real clunky. It feels like it's oiled. Um, if you have your leisure, hobbies, and rest in a, in a godly, gospel-centered place, there becomes this kind of decently running, oiled rhythm to life. And there's not constant consternation between, when can I go do, go do my hobby? When can I get away to go do my thing? When can I, which a lot of people feel, and a lot of people, when they're supposed to be doing their job, or being with their kids or their family, or listening to their wife or somebody else, they're thinking about when they can go do something. That's really a leisure or a hobby or something like that. Third is, you have to actually engage in the leisure activity to be taking leisure. Right? That's sort of like the anti-workaholic one. Like, if you're like, oh yeah, I love fishing. It's one of my leisure activities. And you're like, so when's the last time you went fishing? And you're like, you know, in, you know April 15th of 2001. You know, like th- that you're not doing it. Right? So you have to actually do it. The thing. Um, and then just taking enjoyment in the life of creation. I'm not going to spend a bunch more time on that. But those are four of the things where you can, you, we can make sure that our, our, um, our leisure and our rest is not wallowing in something that is inherently sinful, is not out of whack and imprudential, but is in line with the gospel and its truth. And then the third thing to talk about is the avocations should be ordered partly by your stage of life and capacity. So I was having a conversation with a woman a few days ago who had a period of her life where she was just physically unable to do things because of pain. She's like, I had to realize that praying for stuff that went by my window was my ministry. That was my avocation spiritually. That's not true for most of us. We're going to be launching a, um, a local mission partnership um, where we're going to be, I'm going to be encouraging you this fall um, to read with kids at Orchard Ridge School and to do some stuff with some ministries we're going to do and the uh, um, Alliance. Um, Sorry, Kathy, right now. But we're going to be doing some stuff locally. And when we were doing it, we were putting together these um, local ministry opportunities. My blood pressure just kept rising. Um, and it's because I just have no idea how I'm going to fit these things into my life. And finally, and I was in a staff meeting, I said, listen, I don't know how I'm going to talk about this with the church because I don't think I'm going to be able to do any of these things myself. And um, I think I was with Mike and Jill because we were talking about how we were going to communicate it, Jill, and how we were going to organize it, Mike. And they both looked at me and they were like, yeah, we know. Of course you're not going to do either of them. And I was like, yeah, but that's, I mean, like, I always have this idea as a pastor, like, I need to live out something to see if it's even humanly natural and possible and spiritual and whether or not it destroys you before I ask the church to. And they're like, yeah, but like, you're, you, you are right. You can't do this. Our, our moral responsibility in concentric circles of service start with family and home. I'm 38. I have a wife and I have four children. When my children is disabled, I have a widowed mother that lives with me. There are six people I have responsibilities to just in my house. 
I have three sets of new neighbors, all with kids my youngest daughter's age. Two of them aren't Christian families, but they've just moved in around us, literally bordering our property. I have responsibilities to get to know those neighbors, to become friends with them, and so that I can be there for them at moments and allow them to be there for me at other moments. These are fundamental, immediately close concentric circles of my responsibility. And so I'm just in a stage of life, and I am just in a place where I don't know how I'm going to get to— I don't know how I'm going to weekly go down to Orchard Ridge and read with fourth graders. I just don't know how I'm going to do it, and I'm probably not in this stage of life. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to tell you to do it. Because we're not all in the same life stage. We're not all in the same situation. And some of us can do it. Right? Retired people, seven plus hours of leisure a day. Right? So one of the things we have to do is rethink certain life stages. Um, for, for retired people, um, we have some amazing retired people at High Point. Um, I was, I was, as I was walking out of the last service, I was running into all of these retired people who I could have named. Lloyd and Cleo Tyndall, who do missions work in Guatemala with starving children. Um, Jan, Jan Lorch was there. Um, Ruth, um, Ruth Ann Ebsen, who has been teaching a Bible study here for I don't know how long. I think it's in decades now. Um, thinking of the, D- the Diederichs who are going to um, invite another family to live with them for like a year. Um, who, that's going to be raising support and doing missions work. There are tons of people who are in that um, empty nest, retired-ish life stage that are using that life stage to engage in some leisure they wish they could have all along, and also to redeem a portion of that time to serve and love others, and to find a hobby and a love and a leisure in loving and serving other people. Because anybody who loves Jesus is learning to take pleasure in serving others. You just can't meaningfully believe that you're a Christian if you are not experiencing some kind of increasing pleasure in serving other people. It's just a fundamental dynamic of loving God, right? And so, and some people who are younger, like people in their 20s, I talk to people in their 20s all the time, like university, and they're like, I'm so busy. And they actually are busy, but sometimes they don't realize how much of that busyness could be classified as leisure, and that some of it might need to be reappropriated. That's all. And then there are some families that have children, or um, somebody in the family has a chronic disease, or you're caring for your grandchildren because your kids sort of made a train wreck out of their life for a while, or there are some of us that are in life stages and just are in places where you just need to let coach take you out and put you on the bench for some big initiative we're doing for a while. Because your responsibility is your spouse, is your children, is your neighbor— Is the other kids on the sports team you're coaching? Are the people in your immediate small group who are really struggling? They are the people at your work, because right now work is either going to sink or it's going to swim, and there are lots of people's jobs at stake, and there's something about what you could do productivity-wise that might help work make it instead of not make it. And maybe you need to, for a season— Pour yourself more into your work. I don't know. I don't know. You have to make that decision. And you can counsel with other Christians, and we can talk with each other, but you have to make that decision. Because what we do in our avocations and our leisure and all that stuff is partly dependent on our life stage. All of my hobbies are dictated by my kids now. 
Except, my wife also believes that one of the things I need in my life stage is to get out of Dodge for a week, once a year, elk hunting. Which, I just love her. She is so great. But it's really good for me. I get in a car and I forget about you guys for nine days. And it is so good for me. Um, but it, it, I also, the reason I do that is because I can't keep going a bunch of days deer hunting because it's really bad for my family for me to like leave work and leave and then come back and go and be jolting around to try to find time for myself over a three-month period. It just makes my wife angry and my kids frustrated. And so we've had to make those decisions and make the best of how I can engage in the leisure that I enjoy where I could still do my work, fulfill all my responsibilities, love my children. And this week, this year, Abby's going to Colorado with me. God help us all. <laughs> Let me give you just a few pieces of pastoral advice. Some of these I've already talked about. If you want to know if your leisures, leisures, hobbies, rest, celebration are in their recreational order, start by asking somebody who will tell you the truth, who loves you enough to say something bad if they need to, and who can also say something encouraging that you might require. Um, most people watching your life who know you and love you know if your vocational life or if your avocational life and leisure life is in order or if it's out of whack. Just ask them to be honest with you. Second is, if you've got young kids, you might have to make some hard choices about what you're going to do. But try to include them. Just do, do your best, you know, as they get old. But here's the other thing. Too many parents do what their kids want to do. Can I just be honest with you? Way too many parents just do whatever their kids want to do. It's not good for your kids. Okay? If you're going to let your kids do what they want to do, let them play by themselves. It's called imaginative play. They don't need you to be their imagination for them. Okay? And give them crappy toys that aren't anything in particular, like paper towel rolls and stuff, so that their imagination decides what it is, rather than like Nabisco or whatever the heck is making toys these days. Okay? First of all, it'll also keep them from being the needy kind of extrovert, okay? Secondly, get them to do what you're doing, okay? Making food is exciting to a kid. My three-year-old, she loves it when I hand her a knife. <laughs> she thinks it's awesome. If I don't tell her I'm going to go play some foofy thing, she wants to do what I'm doing. She, she and her three-year-old friend spent 15 minutes picking worms out of dirt with me two days ago. And I was like, you guys can see the really tiny ones I can't see. Can you find them? They're like, oh yeah, they're right here. <laughs> and Judah's like, this is awesome. We're so dirty. <laughs> right? If you will just invite them into something, because the other thing too is, is that oftentimes when you play with them, you, you do something that isn't productive. And sometimes by inviting them into what you're doing, and you're doing something, it draws them into the joy of productivity in a way that their play doesn't. That's not to say play isn't important. It's really important. So don't screw it up. Let them do it. They'll naturally do the right thing with it. But when you invite them into something, invite them into something that's interesting and productive for a little while, and then do whatever they want. Right? So one of the reasons why so many dads wish their kids loved fishing, and you can apply this to everything, not just fishing, is they take them fishing, and then they get angry when the kid won't fish. Right? After like 10 minutes, they say, take your kid fishing. All the articles say this about kids and fishing. Take them fishing, fish for like nine minutes, and then do whatever the heck they want. If they want to throw rocks in the water, throw rocks in the water. They'll love fishing the rest of their life and bring candy. 
So teaching your kids and trying to enjoy, if you get too task-oriented, it doesn't work, right? Um, sometimes you got to purge. Sometimes it's time to just get rid of a bunch of hobbies. Sorry. You just, just sometimes it's just time to get rid of a bunch of hobbies. Or wrap it up in duct tape and put it in a far part of the attic for when you're an empty nester. And then the thing will be obsolete. All right. And then using your avocations for the gospel to bless other people or evangelistically to invite non-Christians to do it with you. So last time I went elk hunting, I invited three non-Christians to go with me. This time I invited a couple too. Um, and it'll, it'll, be, it'll be fun. I mean, they'll have to fend for themselves, and we'll just do it. But then we'll camp together, we'll eat together, we'll talk together, we'll drive together. When I was in Florida, Alex and I, I was making a salary where we were saving like maybe $500 a year for a family of four. And so when an older guy who had like a hunting lease invited me to come and shoot a deer so I could bring 70 pounds of red meat home to my family for free, well, for the 39 cents of the shell, right? That was, a, that was honestly a huge blessing for me. So I got to go out, I got to relax in a deer stand, nap for most of it, and then like bring home real food that costs five dollars a pound if my wife bought it at Winn-Dixie, right? Like that, that blessed me. And for them it was just like, they were buck hunting, they didn't want to shoot the does, invite the like young pastor guy who'll do it. But it blessed me and they cared enough to invite me. And who knows what it is for you? Cooking for somebody or inviting somebody over, just being with somebody, inviting them into the game that you're already going to watch. Whatever it is, right? And then lastly, <clears throat> you, you can use meaningful leisure to serve other people in lots of different ways, and Christians should be growing in seeing service itself as leisure. And so in your spiritual growth, seek, seek to grow in that. We'll end with this. Um, we're, we're about to see a video of a young woman's story and, and to do a baptism of a young woman named Megan. Are you here, Megan? Where is she? She's back there somewhere. Oh, she's getting changed. Sorry. Okay. Um, Megan! I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not only does Jesus, because he's the creator, bring meaning to all of our leisure and our enjoyment and our celebration and all that stuff, but he also frees the human soul in internal spiritual rest. receive his free, generous gift of enjoyment. In the book of Hebrews, the whole first part of the book, in fact, the whole book is about <clears throat> how Jesus is better than everything that you think is religiously awesome for Jewish people. And so the first thing that Jesus is better than is the angels, and the angels are very great. Okay, angels are, are, are very great, and Jesus is better than angels. And then the greatest human is Moses, right, in Judaism. Moses is like the man, and Jesus is greater than Moses, right? So what's third? What's the third greatest thing? In the Jewish mind of everything God has revealed from the beginning until now, everything he's told us, everything he's done for us, every way he saves, what is the third, after angels and Moses, what is the third greatest thing? And he says, the third, Jesus is better than the Sabbath. That's the third thing. Jesus is the super rest. The greater rest, the bigger rest, the truer rest. That there is a rest from all guilt, all shame, all anxiety, all boredom, all internal strife and real external guilt that comes from our brokenness with ourselves, our loss of our own nature, our rebellion against our own image, our rejection of the divine giver, 
our rejection of our role over all the earth, and there is one who comes and sets all of that right in his death and resurrection, in faith and regeneration, through repentance and belief. And Jesus sets all of that clamoring, anxious, thinning busyness to silence in salvation, to silence. And he can step forward and he can say, peace be with you. And you can feel the peace of a good exhale. And then you can open your eyes and you can look at everything in front of you and you can receive it totally differently. And everything in the world becomes like God feels with all of the swirling beauty of the cosmos in a single one-day flower. And you will see it in everything else with the kind of pleasure God has given because he has richly given all of these things for our enjoyment. So for the next few minutes, take joy in a story of a young woman finding Jesus, taking on his name, and becoming part of his church. Are you ready, guys?